Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, we just wanted to talk about the Phoenix Live View gets a minor release. This is version 0.17.10. So we're just talking about a very minor release, but I just picked this up this morning as I was looking for some updates. And I noticed that all of the changes were around formatting, like the Heeks formatter. Originally, when the Heeks formatter was released, there was a lag between VS Code support and everything else. All that's working now. And so now I've, I've really been enjoying using the Heeks formatter just on my templates and components and really liking that. And I remember when the Elixir formatter first came out, there were numerous releases where just kind of one release after another, where they were tweaking the formatting rules, just kind of settling into what about this case? What about that situation? Since libraries like LiveView can provide their own formatting rules, I expect we'll see more releases like this where the rules are just tweaked and improved. The original set of formatting choices it would make in the Heeks templates weren't always what I liked, and maybe I'd reformat something to be more readable for me, and then it would like swing it back up, you know, to change it back. Not a big deal, not something you have to go rush out and update to, but thought it was cool that we're seeing progress there and loving that I'm having Heeks template formatting working. So really happy about that. A couple of little examples of what was fixed in there is like handling self-closing tags as inline. There's now a uh, special attribute, Phoenix or PHX no format. So if you wanted it to skip formatting something, you can now instruct it not formatting inline elements surrounded by text without white spaces. So like white space is kind of like one of those weird things where you, you kind of need white space in, in some cases and, and the formatter would, would wipe it out. Now it's a little bit smarter about when to keep it. There's other things in there too, but if any of those specific cases bit you, you know, give this one an update. A little while ago, we talked about the Live View 0.6 release. One of the things it included was Smart Cells. And if you haven't had a chance to check it out, you really should. It's pretty cool. They came with a few built-in Smart Cells, like you click a button and you get a little component to connect to Postgres. And it gives you like inputs to just put in all the credentials and, and what the URL is. Well, it turns out you can actually make your own smart cells, and I can see there being a variety of reasons you might want to do this. So you just wanted to share a blog post that Stephen Ball created that walks you through the process of actually creating your own custom smart cell. So this is an interesting thing. I've seen some people tweeting about it. One thing, for example, I saw someone tweeting about a Snowflake smart cell. So Snowflake is just kind of a warehouse SaaS company that we happen to use. and you just plug in your credentials and your and your uh, account name and you, you get to connect, which touched my heart a little bit, I must say, because the, the previous day I had just spent a while connecting to Snowflake and it was definitely not as easy as just putting a username and password and, a, and, a, and then a company name in there. <laughs> a lot more work. So <laughs> I can see some really cool stuff coming out, maybe using this for like internal team resources, like a smart sell to to make requests to your own company billing system, just things of that nature. I can see this being like really, really helpful. I'm curious. So uh, when that uh, awesome list shows up that collects all these like live book. Awesome smart cells. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be pretty cool. Uh, last up, short news today. Etso was updated to work with the latest Ecto. Uh, if you haven't heard of Etso, it is an interface between Ecto and the programming APIs there. And ETS, 
ETS with uh, Erlang. So it's that memory store, you know, key value store there. If you'd used it recently, you would you would realize that you know Ecto on the latest version three point eight, Etso wouldn't work with with that. It would your yeah, hex would complain about uh, dependency there. Well, that's now solved. So now it supports Ecto three point eight. There's also a couple of new features there: support for order by and support for parallel preloads. So if you're using Etso or want to go check out Etso, now's the time. It should work with all the latest and greatest things. If there are things that you would like us to talk about in the news and raise some awareness, please just shoot us an email and let us know. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Sean Moriarty. Sean, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, Sean, I am really happy that we could get you on the show. We have been trying to meet up with you for months, and this is happening. So, yay. Thank you for coming. Yeah, I'm very excited, too. So. so, initially, you kind of popped up on the Elixir radar when you had your book, Genetic Algorithms in Elixir, come out. And that was like the precursor to NX. That book was a, an impetus for you talking with Jose Valim, and, and something started happening in that direction. So I'm really excited to learn about the history there and also your current involvement, what you're doing, and where things are going. So before we jump into all that, though, I'd love to hear a little, a little bit more about you. My name is Sean Moriarty. I'm 24 years old, uh, originally from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the United States. I've been programming now for, for quite a while. I, I got my first computer when I was 12 and, and somehow randomly fell in love with it. I started programming in, in PHP, which I'm sure a lot of people are going to cringe when they hear that. But so my, my uh, catalyst into programming was actually I, I watched the movie The Social Network, which is, is also kind of cringy to say. <laughs> and then I started researching what like what Facebook was written in. And I was like, oh, PHP, this must be the greatest programming language ever. So that's kind of where I got my start into web development, which is also kind of funny because I'm probably the world's worst web developer. I don't ever do any web programming. Um, that's also kind of funny, too, because Elixir is obviously very well known for, for web development with the Phoenix framework and everything. Um, I got interested in the machine learning actually through a class I took in college. I was kind of motivated by, I have a lot of friends that are really into to sports betting, so we can talk about that a little bit as well. And that was kind of what led me into the world of machine learning, also a little bit in, in genetic algorithms. And then, you know, the book got written, NX happened, and, and now I'm here. That's really cool because I remember when your book first came out, Genetic Algorithms in Elixir, I was like, wow, that's that's a heady topic, right? Just the idea of genetic algorithms I would love it if you could just give us a brief idea of what genetic algorithms means and how you can do something in Elixir with that. Yeah, so the idea behind uh, genetic algorithms is more or less an, an informed search. So you start with an initial population of solutions. It's, it's populations, uh, and they're called chromosomes. Each solution is, is called a chromosome. So for example, one of the problems we talk about in the book is the N queens problem. I'm not sure if you all are, are big chess fans, but I, I do like playing chess. And so the, the N queens problem is trying to find a configuration on a chessboard where none of the queens are conflicting with one another. And so this is a very famous combinatorial optimization problem. Combinatorial optimization is basically just finding like a permutation or a configuration that meets some constraint. Uh, or, or is is you know maximizes some objective, and so you can basically throw all those queens randomly on a chessboard and evaluate each of those solutions in parallel. So 
you know, you'll have a solution that has your, your queen uh, all the way in the top corner, another queen all the way in the bottom corner, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and what a genetic algorithm does is it goes through uh, and it looks at multiple of those solutions at once and then evaluates them based on their fitness. And the fitness is your own defined criteria. And then it uses uh, the principles of evolution, quote unquote evolution, crossover and mutation. It's where it combines solutions and, and mutates solutions to make even better solutions. Well, Sean, let me let me ask you this then. I was really curious. You mentioned that you started off with PHP as like your first go-to experience with programming. Like mine was QBasic and QuickBasic. You know, we all start somewhere, right? But then how did you end up saying Elixir is the language I want to spend time in and even center a book around? Yeah, so I got into Elixir sometime in college. I had a, you know an interest in or an idea for a web application that I wanted to work on, and and I also wanted to learn something new. So I was researching, you know, what kind of languages are out there to to build this on because I really hated PHP. I, I had you know learned that it was probably not the the most fun language to work in, and I'd started learning Scala at the time, so I'd kind of gotten interested into to Scala's functional paradigms. And I came across Elixir in a Quora answer. If you know the the website Quora, it was like, what is the best programming language for web development? And someone had written or written an answer that was essentially like, oh, Elixir is the fastest, most scalable, best language ever. Oh, wow. So you need to use it. <laughs> That's a pretty cool place to find Elixir is in Quora. <laughs> yes. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have expected that. Yeah. I, so at the time, I, I like read Quora religiously um, for all sorts of topics I really like to read. So and, and web development and programming was one of the topics. So I, I was actually just scrolling Quora one day and, and um, had found that and yeah, I started learning Elixir initially just for this like web idea that I'd had. And then I, I really like fell in love with the language. And like I said, mentioned previously, I'm not the greatest web developer. I never have been. And and I, you know, got tired of, of working on, on the web stuff, but I was like, this is a really cool language. I really I want to keep working in it. And so I started messing around with, with doing some math, genetic algorithm type stuff, machine learning type stuff. No, nothing that I ever ended up publishing, but I was like, this is a lot of fun. I, it, you know, it'd be really cool if someone wrote you know, some numerical computing and machine learning programs in it, uh, but I had never actually had the time to do it. So I, I didn't really get around to it then. So that was probably, I would say four-ish years ago when I had first heard of Elixir. And so I pretty much have been been into it ever since. Um, I bought the Programming Elixir book. I also brought the, bought the Programming Phoenix book. So I've, I've read through both of those. So you, you had these ideas of numeric Elixir. How did you end up being introduced to Jose and working with him and his team to build these libraries. Yeah, so that's actually a, a pretty funny story. After I'd finished the genetic algorithms in Elixir book, I kind of, I was not really expecting anything to really happen from it. I was like, you know, this is a cool idea. Hopefully it gets people thinking outside the box, introduced to, to something new. But I didn't really expect for Elixir to ever become, you know, like a Python, Julia, R type language where, you know, there's good support, first class support for numerical computing and machine learning. And so one of the things they tell you when you're while you're writing a book for Pragprog is you kind of have to expect, I don't know if the word's like adversarial, but like responses from people who are going to challenge your opinions and assumptions and, and the things you write in the book. I think it was literally the night that I, you know, the, the book had been released. I, I was all over Twitter. I got an email. I think I, it was at like three or four in the morning. Uh, and I didn't see like who the, the person was, but it was just like, why would you write genetic algorithms in Elixir? Why do you think Elixir is a good language for this? And like my first reaction was like, 
Oh, <laughs> I didn't think that. I didn't think the people would get this angry this quickly. <laughs> this is crazy. The, the um, email came at three or four in the morning, right? So yeah, you knew yeah. you knew that there was probably something going to be wrong with this. <laughs> yeah, I wrote a quick response back, but I was like, goodness, I, I hope this doesn't. You know, I hope I don't get more emails like this. You know, a couple hours later, got a got a reply that was that was basically said, "Hey, you know, Jose said he was interested in." developing some of the machine learning ecosystem. Would you be interested in doing that? And then I, I found the email was actually from Brian at Dockyard. And so I had not recognized who the email was sent from before. And then I looked it up and I was like, okay, maybe he's not trying to challenge my my opinion. He we kind of had a conversation about what I thought machine learning in Elixir would look like. My initial opinion was that, hey, it, you know, Elixir is such a good, I would say beautiful language that, you know, it'd be really nice, especially as like a teaching tool to have people write very idiomatic, like straightforward, functional machine learning algorithms. So that was, I was, I didn't really see it as like a practical endeavor, but he had linked me up with Jose and we started talking about what, what the direction should look like. And uh, we kind of settled on JAX, which is a library out of Google research. That's uh, basically wraps Google's XLA, accelerated linear algebra, which is where the EXLA bindings come in. And JAX actually encourages a functional paradigm, which is sort of why we went that direction, because, you know, Python, you don't often see people encouraging you to use functional principles. So when you find a library like that for the exact use case we're trying to do, um, it just, it made perfect sense. And so that's kind of where everything started. Um, there was a lot of, I would say, initial blockers, a lot of problems that I didn't think we necessarily would be able to address, but the project developed very rapidly and it all started from that that email at like three or four in the morning someone i thought was accusing me of you know <laughs> piercy for writing this book <laughs> so you mentioned that was brian cartarella that was the one who reached out to you he's from dockyard now i understand there's some type of ongoing relationship with dockyard is that right yes that's correct so dockyard sponsors my work with nx axon and the entire nx ecosystem so very appreciative of them for that I also uh, routinely contribute to their blog. So I have, I have more than a few blog posts on machine learning and machine learning operations and, and putting models into production and everything with Dockyard. So definitely check out those if you're interested. Cool. We'll have a link to all that in the show notes. So Sean, you have been living in this machine learning space for a long time, like from university, you've kind of had your head there. A lot of us come to what's been developed here with NX and Axon, and we're not coming from the machine learning space. So what I think is great about this is that it's making Elixir more attractive to people who weren't already interested in it. It's saying, hey, you people already in the machine learning space, check out Elixir. It's, it's a great tool for what you're wanting to do. But for us, we're already in Elixir. Now, NX, Axon, EXLA, can you give us a little bit of a breakdown as to where these pieces, how they fit together and, and what they're doing separately? Yeah, so NX um, is obviously the core library of the Elixir uh, numerical computing and, and machine learning ecosystem. The library itself, the API, is very heavily influenced by the famous NumPy, NumPy library in Python, and it's basically just array-based programming. So machine learning is is a lot of just glorified linear algebra operations, matrix multiplies, and you know convolutions, and so on and so forth. And so to, to have a library, you know, where you can do these sort of array-based operations is essentially a must to have any sort of machine learning capability. Now, what NX does that, that's a little different than NumPy is it 
doesn't actually enforce any sort of backend or, or compiler. So uh, when I say that, I mean NX essentially just is a contract. We have a we have a behavior that's the tensor behavior that says, hey, as long as you implement these operations for the backend implementation, then you can use whatever you want to to program in NX. And so the two implementations of that behavior we have right now are TorchX and EXLA. So TorchX binds to PyTorch's LibTorch. It's their C++ tensor manipulation API. And XLA binds to XLA, which is Google's accelerated linear algebra. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of expensive operations involved in, in machine learning. You're working with massive amounts of data, you know, trying to crunch these numbers. It's like I said, it's something that you can't really do very well natively in Elixir in the Beam. So we had to, to, to go out to a NIF for that. So what XLA specifically, which is what I've spent most of my time is, is actually a tensor compiler. So what they do is they take a special subset of machine learning operations and they say, these are the, these are the primitives or what they're called in JAX. These are the primitive operations that you do in machine learning. So you have element-wise operations, which are like the exponential, cosine, sine, so on and so forth. And then you have your sort of fundamental, like this is a matrix multiply, this is a transpose, and they break them out into what you could essentially consider like assembly instructions. If you, you had done much assembly programming, you have like jump and JQ, all, all the, the great assembly operations. And so you have what, what I would say is just like machine learning assembly. It's basically, they call it HLO, high level optimizer. It's a intermediate representation. And so what XLA does is it builds out a graph. So when you, whenever you define something in DefN, NX DefN, which is our numerical definitions, it'll step through that program and it'll build out a nice little computation graph for you. And it says, hey, you're going to do an exponential and then you're going to add and then you're going to do a matrix multiply here. And so then we take that NX expression and we transform that into a XLA representation, their HLO representation. And then they take that and they use LLVM and they compile it to whatever backend you're working on. So if you have an Intel machine, they'll use Intel AVX 512, the, the, the new SIMD instructions. If you have a GPU, they'll use CUDA and they'll compile a special CUDA kernel for you. And if you're working on Google's accelerator, the TPU, then they'll, they'll compile a special program for you there. And now the big advantage of that compilation process is, is fusion. So as you can imagine, uh, one of the, the issues is, especially when they were writing these, these libraries in Python, is they realized it's really actually expensive to return to the original programming language. So it's, I always find it funny in TensorFlow, they're like, you want to do as much as possible outside of Python <laughs> to make it go fast. It's, so they, what they did was they're like, well, people don't want to write these like very specialized kernels. So like one famous example is softmax is a, is a neural network activation function that you can implement very, I would say simply using straightforward operations. But what they realized is if you, if you were to do that, you know, express that in something like NumPy, it would dispatch all of those individual operations. So it would say like, I'm going to compute an exponential and then I'm going to return to Python and then I'm going to compute, you know, an addition and then I'm going to return to Python. And so as you, you do those back and forth copies and, and, you know, yielding to, to the language you're working in, it's actually really, really inefficient. We would have had the same problem in Elixir as well, because uh, with Elixir, everything is obviously immutable. So we'd be copying back and forth, copying back and forth. So if we can express our programs now with this DefN intermediate representation, we can basically compile these really long programs, write them out really nicely, have basically, you know, one buffer in and then one buffer out. So it makes things very efficient and it simplifies the process a lot for us as well.
How involved were you with the development of NX and those features like the Def N? Um, so I was involved in the process from the beginning. I, I don't think I had necessarily the same vision that Jose had because uh, I, I didn't really see it all come together until the very end. So I was very, very committed to getting XLA to work because that was like the initial proof of concept that, hey, we can have a really fast NIF implementation of machine learning and numerical computing. But as you know, the, the, the ecosystem developed out, I was like, oh, this is actually really cool. One, one thing I thought was interesting is Jax actually recently started to go to a more pluggable backend compiler framework similar to us. And I'm not going to say they copied us because they <laughs> probably didn't even pay attention to what we were doing. But it is nice to know that we probably made the correct decision in that we're not beholden to any sort of you know external project because, like I said, what NX is is fundamentally just a, a contract. So if someone releases like the, the fastest machine learning numerical computing algorithms in existence like tomorrow, then we're very well set up to, to just migrate to that uh, without having to worry about any sort of drastic changes to the project, which is very nice. One of the other pieces of this ecosystem that's been built up is Axon. And I would love to understand a little bit more about that because like we talked about NX as you know the, the NumPy equivalent where I can do def n and have like that intermediate language that's being built up. And EXLA, which is talking more to existing external libraries and systems that Google's built out. And I know you're actively involved with Axon. So maybe you can help me get my head around what is Axon doing? Yeah, so Axon is a library for developing, creating and training neural networks in Elixir. And so what a, a neural network is, is, is essentially just a big function. Neural networks are, they say they're universal function approximators, which whether or not that's a, a useful assertion is, is left to be said. But what a neural network is, it basically just takes an input. Um, and when I say an input, that could be like an image or it could be some text. It takes an encoded representation of whatever your input is. So if you have an image of, say, like a cat, your image would be encoded into, you know, the, the height and the width, pixel width of the image, uh, as well as the number of color channels. So if you have RGB, you'll have three color channels. And so if it's a 32 by 32 image of a, of a cat that's R RGB, you'll have a 32 by 32 by three tensor, essentially. So you'd feed that into your neural network and it would go through a series of transformations, functional transformations, where um, you'll do, say, like a convolution, which is like a signal processing manipulation, essentially. It's, it's a little complicated to get into here, but then you'll do, say, like a matrix multiply. You'll apply some, what they say are non-linearities, which is basically just like a, a element-wise function that could be like a hyperbolic tangent or a, a rectified linear unit, which is just like element-wise operations. And it'll, it'll spit out a final answer for you, essentially. That's like a probability that this image is of a cat, say, is one example. And so, like I said, what it, what it really is, is just a glorified composition of functions that can be trained with, with gradient descent, uh, which is, is another machine learning topic. So yeah, neural networks are, are really, really powerful, um, which is surprising because it's a really, I would say, simple concept. You just have a bunch of you know, functional transformations and, and in the end you get a, a probability out. It's, it's incredible that they, they work as well as they do. They're really, really popular right now. So in, in the last week, I don't know if you've been following any of the, the AI news, but there's been like three or four like massive transformer models, which is a really famous neural network architecture right now, released from big companies like Google, Facebook, OpenAI, et cetera, to, to do some really incredible things. Axon is, is basically the Elixir implementation of neural networks. So the idea with Axon is that 
one, you should be able to create whatever neural network architecture you want in Elixir. Two, you should be able to import any of the existing architectures out there from, from Python, which is something we can touch on a little bit that's been an active area of development. Um, and then three, that you can train whatever neural network you want. And so training is basically the process of just like throwing examples at a neural network, having it make predictions, and then if the predictions are wrong, you update the neural network a little bit to, to make it right. You had to forgive me for not knowing anything about machine learning or neural networks, but like, can you do more than just working with images and neural networks? Could you like work with messages, text information? Yeah, so that's probably the the biggest application of neural networks right now is in the world of natural language processing. So the like, I would say most famous models are transformers. Uh, they're from a 2017 paper. Attention is all you need is a very famous like saying and and paper in the machine learning space. Yeah, you can take basically text, you can take, you know, images, you can take video, you can take sound, you can take pretty much anything you can encode numerically on a computer, you can throw out a neural network. Now, that's not to say that neural networks are the best option for every problem out there. There are a lot of problems like, for example, time series data and tabular data that are much better solved using something like gradient boosting decision trees, et cetera. But when you're in a very, I would say, large data regime, neural networks are easily probably the best option for you. The other thing that neural networks are really good at is like generative modeling. So Dolly 2 and Imagine are two, like the more recent models coming out of Google and DeepMind that are, I would say, like generative in nature. They can take in text and spit out an image for you, which is some of the examples they have are really incredible. Chat moderation, for example, could be like a good neural network use case it takes in words and outputs like a prediction of like whether or not you should censor it or if it has swear words or something like that yeah absolutely so any any sort of like supervised problem or something that neural networks could could reasonably solve um, with chat moderation it would be a great application of, of transformers or you know other sequence based neural networks yeah I could see that with uh with chat based things just because even if it's not acting autonomously, it could be actively filtering and identifying and raising up and say, we think this is something that needs to be examined. And then you can have a human look at it and say, yep, you know, kick and ban that user. It's abusive or something like that. So I think it's interesting, just a lot of the applications. And then as you're doing that, you're giving training feedback, right? The activity can be recorded and, and be used as future training. So I think that's what's most interesting to me is that it's a continually improving data set that you're kind of cultivating. And so I think it's a fascinating area of development that there's a lot of research being put into. And it's also an area that I am complete novice at. So I don't know that I, I have the aspiration to really dig in and like become a machine learning developer, but I certainly see how it's valuable that the languages that we care about, like Elixir in particular, be really good at working with those things. So as we work in systems uh, where the company that we're at has a lot of big data now, and I would love to help the data-focused people get access to that data through our systems. So I think that's where, really where I see myself kind of being that bridge and helping that to happen. So I'm curious, like with you, Sean, and you've been working on this, you kind of said how, as you started working on something like EXLA, that Jose had this vision about how these different pieces would fit together. And now it's all kind of coming together. Where do you see this going in the future? 
Yeah, so I think the the biggest steps for the future are maybe, in my opinion, an emphasis on operationalizing these tools. So basically making use of NX and Axon and uh, the other machine learning tools we're building in a production environment. So I think one of the biggest advantages of working in Elixir for this problem is if you if you have a, an application that's deployed in Elixir and you need to do any sort of machine learning at all, you're obviously shelling out to Python or Julia or, or R or whatever other language. And so the plumbing that goes into actually making those pieces talk is is kind of a pain. So any sort of integration there is is not necessarily like a match made in heaven. With NX and Axon, it actually enables you like to work in a single language, a single you know paradigm, um, and all the plumbing kind of just falls into place, which is I think a huge advantage for an Elixir developer who who wants to make use of machine learning and they don't have to go and make you know their application talk to some Python script or or, or whatever. So that's really nice. Another thing that I found is is really nice with with Elixir is a lot of the bigger models will use like model servers, which are basically just like high performance C++ REST or, or HTTP or gRPC servers where you basically just use you know a REST API to get inference from a model. And so doing that in Elixir before NX took, I would say, a considerable amount of work. But now you can actually work natively in NX to do some pre-processing of whatever your inputs are and then, and then you know, shell out to that external service uh, and then get the the inference back and do some some post-processing as well so that's been a, a very nice experience that's something that i've i personally have worked on that's been pretty awesome to see another thing i noticed that was recent was the rustler pre-compiled which seems to be something that would also help in using a lot of these other external tools and libraries that are using rust already and that's a, that's part of the ecosystem part of something that needs to be supported have you seen that as a, a benefit to the work you've been doing as well yeah, definitely. Um, pre-compiled NIFs are, are a really huge thing, especially if anybody remembers working with uh, XLA before we were able to actually pre-compile the XLA library. It took like two and a half hours on like a really decently powerful machine to compile because it had to compile basically like parts of the TensorFlow source. And so the initial pre-compilation of the XLA library and then the pre-compilation of Explorer it was really awesome to see. It was a really a huge help to the developer experience. Um, I think a lot of people were put off by those long compile times initially when working with XLA. So it's nice to have those sort of eliminated. And I think that'll help a lot moving forward as we try to wrap these you know, massive projects to have someone you know, pre-compile that for you in, in, in a CICD or, or whatever uh, is obviously a huge help to developer experience. So it's exciting. I feel like I hear people talking a lot about training and like, you can pass images and then a human can say, yes, you're right or no, you're wrong. And like, I just feel like I hadn't really seen it in the wild actually working like that. It's kind of like hot reloading. Like you hear everybody say how great it is, but like nobody actually does it. <laughs> um, but I actually saw an, an app that my wife was using the other day that was like trying to help with the 1950 census. And it was like, the app was like reading the names and it was saying yes, and it just had a yes or no button on it. Like, yes, the computer got it right or no, it didn't. And if you hit no, then you could like put in what the right name was. And I was like, okay, that's actually kind of cool. I'm seeing it for real in the wild. I mean, I hope that they're like using that human input to like continue to train, but it seemed like it seemed pretty cool. I mean, so these like external feedback mechanisms are, are all around us. I think they're probably a little more subtle than just like an explicit, is this right or wrong? So a good example is like Google's captures. I knew it. <laughs> Identify the traffic light in this image. Like that's 
right there that yeah, that's that's training data or uh, Google Translate is another one where you can explicitly correct a translation and you know ads when they when they serve an ad it's like do you want to see this yes no and then that's going to obviously go back as feedback that's i think like a, a big i guess a hidden area of of application development is trying to build in these like feedback mechanisms with without maybe necessarily advertising that it is a feedback mechanism right it's like maybe you don't want someone to ha- explicitly be able to say whether or not the the prediction is right or wrong but you kind of want that feedback anyway so you can you got to protect from the from the trolls on the internet that would go mess up your training <laughs> oh yeah there's definitely like a certain percentage of that as well it's uh <laughs> it's interesting when you mentioned that, it reminded me of this XKCD. I'll have a link to this in the in the show notes if you want to go check it out. But it's like this, to complete your registration, please tell us whether or not this image contains a stop sign. <laughs> and it's below, it's like, answer quickly, our self-driving car is almost at the intersection. <laughs> That's funny. I think you're right, though. Like, there are applications of it that were companies, I think the it's the bigger companies that are most equipped to do this, but they're leveraging it in ways we're not even seeing. Google's been training like a spell correction network since the beginning of time was when you type in a, a typo in Google search, it's like, did you mean this? They're like, yes, I did. It's like, got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting The like early applications of, of AI and, and machine learning. I think Peter Norvig was the head of search at Google for a while. And on his website, he actually has a, a very early implementation of a spell checker. A lot of those early approaches weren't even really machine learning at all. It was like very logic driven. I think expert systems is, is a good word for it, where it's like we can encode knowledge, like encode enough knowledge in this system that it will be sentient. And that was kind of like the, the big idea until I would say maybe the early 2000s. 2012 is really when neural networks took off and, and they embraced this like probabilistic way of reasoning. And the catalyst, I think, is is really like the ImageNet. If anybody's familiar with ImageNet, that was the it was a big uh, competition where they had to classify images. Uh, they had a neural network classify images, and it like blew every other algorithm out of the water. But before that, you know, there was a lot of people that that believed that hey, we can we can encode like every rule of the English language in this system, and it will know like it will understand fundamentally what the English language is, and. You can kind of like laugh a little bit at that that belief. Uh, it's in hindsight, maybe, but like English is very complicated. Trying to encode every single exception, you know, in the system is just a maddening task. And so you can kind of see how that sort of logic breaks down. And like the principle behind neural networks is that a simple rule is much better than a very complicated rule and captures enough of you know whatever your data distribution is to be you know powerful. So like. The, there's a the deep learning book is a, is a great book by Ian Goodfellow and his example for this is if you're trying to come up with a rule for birds that can fly like it's much easier to say that you know 80% of birds fly than it is to say all birds fly except for injured birds and penguins and like birds without wing and like you go down the list of exceptions you realize yeah it's actually just much simpler to to come up with a probabilistic uncertain rule than it is to uh, have a certain rule with a bunch of exceptions. I I remember coming about a headline that said that like Google's neural network can understand humor, like, and what that means. And I know that humor is another like complex, non-rule-based kind of, well, maybe it's more rule-based than I I realize, but non-rule-based kind of understanding between humans and very contextual, you know, of what's going on in the world. And then the second thing I thought of was 
on Reddit, the, the the best way to get an, the right answer is by posting the wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm trying to imagine all of these like secret neural nets that are going on on Reddit right now, trying to collect and codify knowledge by just posting a bunch of wrong stuff on, <laughs> yeah. on, on reddit and then and then taking the answers uh, uh some of them are, are actually like really good like high quality answers right that go into nuances and stuff <laughs> and then codifying that so the google that's their palm model is is the one that they can say can understand humor it's the pathways language model they just actually released it a couple weeks ago i'm not i'm not necessarily in the in the camp that you know, these large neural networks understand in, in the sense that, you know, we understand, but I also don't know if it necessarily matters. There's like a big debate raging right now that like, are these like, like, are we going to get to general intelligence within the next five years? And I, I, I honestly think that debate is a little, uh, it's a little bit of a waste of time in my opinion, because it's like, well, I don't really think it matters if we get to general intelligence in five years, because I would say the things that we care about these neural networks being good at will probably get good enough at them in the next five years to where like we don't really need general intelligence to improve the quality of life of, of, of you know, the population with these neural networks. So there's like a, an infinite amount of applications that these can be applied to without necessarily needing to be, quote unquote, generally intelligent. That gets into an area, though, that's like. No one's going to be able to resolve this, right? But it's maybe it's worth saying. Like, I, I know that it, thinking contextually, with with a lot of like uh, world events that are going on, I I don't have to have a lot of data behind a thing that I say, right? And and just and and the mere fact that I said it, you know, has enough power to be to spread in a way that can mislead other other folks right and and if that thing gets repeated enough it's the basis of advertising right if if i just show you the image enough times you're going to want that reese's you know peanut butter cup and it's the same thing i think for just just stating something whether it's true or not if, if you know neural networks and natural language processing can get good enough to where they're no, of course they don't really understand humor and they're not sentient in the way that we think of like in the movies, but they're convincing enough. What kind of effect would that have on on the world? Is is this why Google took "Don't be evil" out of their motto? <laughs> <laughs> their internal AI told them to. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting like problem. And I think it's one of the things I've been trying to, to wrap my mind around is what, you know, what the, the future of, of the web looks like in the context of these like large language models. And so there's a lot of startups recently that are basically centering their business around like transformers and large language models and putting large language models in production. So you have OpenAI has their GPT-3 API, which is just like a rest api to their to their big models and they charge like per thousand tokens or whatever and then there's a lot of other companies that are following it like cohere ai is one uh that's started by one of the original authors of the transformer paper so there's a lot of these companies that are like basically making a big bet that a lot of people are going to want to build apps around these large language models and like to me i'm kind of looking at it like okay well if that works you know it could be a really positive and and big thing but like what does the web look like as it evolves around these apis like is, is it going to be kind of like wordpress where it's like anybody off the street can make a website that is built on ai which is an interesting thing to think about what that would look like or is it going to be one of those things that like hey this was a bad idea from the start and it'll never work everybody just forget that it even happened <laughs> so it's, it's an interesting time 
Well, Sean, I know I personally am very grateful for the efforts and everything that you've put into doing this work in Elixir. It's not just that, hey, I want to push this forward as, a, as an industry and as, as in thoughts and, and doing active work. It's like that you're actually doing it in Elixir and you're like, I'm going to spend my time to make it so Elixir can be good at these things too. I think it's awesome. I appreciate all that work you've done. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Really passionate about the project and, and moving the ecosystem forward and, and hopefully getting a lot more uh, Elixir programmers involved in the machine learning. So what's next for you, for the libraries that you're working on? Is there a place where people can get involved if that's something they're wanting to do? Yeah, definitely. So we have the machine learning working group, the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation. The Slack there is pretty much where all of the development efforts happen. For me, the, the big thing coming up is the Axon 0.1 release and then the uh, Axon ONNX 0.1 release. ONNX is just a library that you can use to import pre-trained models. And so those should be coming up very soon. There's just a few things in the library I need to tidy up. But once that release is out, it should basically enable you know, Elixir users to import essentially any pre-trained model from the Python ecosystem into Elixir without having to do, you know, any sort of hoop jumping and, and whatnot. So that's very exciting. And then we also have a, a secret project that should come out sometime in, in the two weeks that follow the Axon release. That's very exciting. And, and I'm very excited to see that move forward. So I don't know if I can say the name yet, but <laughs> it's, it's another secret project in the NX ecosystem. <laughs> I know that Jose is wanting to share something in the uh, ElixirConf EU, like announce something there. So I don't know if that lines up with the timeline at all to be maybe something he's going to share there. I don't know. Have to see and wait and find out. Potentially, yeah, I guess we'll see. Well, Sean, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. And I'm so glad that we were able to catch up with you. From the moment your book landed, I was like, oh, I want to talk with him. And it took us this long to be able to actually make that happen. But I'm so glad it did. So, Sean... Thank you for joining us. I'm really interested in being able to follow what's going on in the future, especially like as you talk about these new Axon releases coming out, the, the 0.1 release. Where can people go to follow you online or keep up with the developments as they happen? Yeah, so you can just follow me on Twitter. My Twitter is Sean underscore Moriarty. That's pretty much where I post everything from blog posts to Elixir and Axon developments, uh, and then some of just my random programming thoughts from time to time. So... Very cool. And we have links to all that in the show notes. Be sure to check that out. But unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.